I'll get everybody settled back down here. As we're getting settled back down, we're continuing our study in Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 22, and we're going to look at the section of Exodus chapter 22 from verses 16 to the end of that chapter, to 31. And now, you know, there are places in the Bible where it might seem or, or might feel a little bit tedious to study. And I got to thinking, most of us, if not all of us, have mobile phones, we have computers. How many of you take the time to read the terms and conditions either on your phone or when you're downloading software, or do you just click OK or accept? Everybody, we just all just flip through it. I read it. them once. <laughs> well, I knew there was going to be one person. Uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> I mean, you know, you may even think there's something weird about the person that chooses to take the time to read through the terms and conditions. I do too, Bill, so it's not. Uh, but as far as the legal code, or as far as the law goes, uh, in the Old Testament, it's in, in the Old Testament. It's really brief compared to legal code in society, uh, and yet I think when most people read through it, they find it hard to meditate on, or they find it hard to to focus on and tend to gloss over it. But there are some precious jewels that we can find here. You know, God tells us that all Scripture is given by Him and is profitable. And the law, as we walk and study through it, is no different. It teaches us what He expects of us. It gives a clear picture of what God expects as far as righteous living. And in the section that we're going to look at today... Uh, we're going to see what true righteous living looks like. Now, in this, in this section, there are really two directions that are interwoven in this section of the law. There's the vertical, which is how we should be acting justly toward God. Now, what this means is living rightly before God. What do we owe to God. There's a horizontal section. How should we act justly and rightly toward others? And you see, loving God and loving others go hand in hand. So I want to start out, and even though we're going to cover sec verses 16 through 31, I want to start with verse 18. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 20. And verse 18 starts off by saying, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Verse 20, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. 
Now, what's interesting about this is that each of these laws, each of these three crimes, demanded the death penalty. I mean, sorcery. Basically, we're talking about bestiality here and sacrifices to false gods. But even though that's the detail, what we've got to make sure we understand is that there was an overarching topic here. And that overarching topic is that we owe God our fully devoted worship. That's what this is involving, is that we owe God our fully devoted worship. You see, these crimes, if we want to call them that, were an assault against the fully devoted worship of God. Each of these, in one way or another, involve false worship. Let's talk about sorcery for just a minute. You know, there's something in the Bible called divination. There's sorcery. Divination is simply trying to, it's still criminal against God's laws, but divination is simply trying to know the future. Sorcery is trying to manipulate the future through cursings or blessings or other forms of spiritual power. A sorceress would try to gain control, would try to manipulate the future through demonic influence. And we've got to draw a deep breath and admit that there is demonic force in this world. Sorcery is a real thing that some people attempt to practice. And in the Bible, people who practiced sorcery, would they told fortunes, they communicated with the dead, they practiced dark occultic rituals. But we are to live our lives as Christians. We are to live our lives in submission to the, to the sovereignty of God's rule over us. His control of our lives. His control of our future. We're not to think that we could call upon the occult or anything else to direct our lives or to, to manipulate a future outcome. When people want not just to know the future, but to somehow control it so that they have a good outcome, they turn to occultic practices. I didn't realize how easy it is until working on this to find, even in our culture, fortune tellers or spirit shops. I went to YP, Yellow Pages, on online and just looked in the Raleigh area and came up with nine the addresses just in the Raleigh. Uh, wasn't even counting Cary or Wake Forest. Nine addresses for psychics and mediums. Uh, and those were local shops. There was a long list of 1-800 numbers that you could call. But so, and I realized it's common. And I think it's common for most Americans to not even notice this anymore and I think it's something that even we as Christians sometimes let just slip by us instead of really feeling repulsed by this 
And what we owe God is to reject anything in life like this. Anything that is practicing something from the dark world. Because we should be people of the light. We should never be looking to understand our future in light of things that are outside of trusting God's sovereign will. Now the second crime, uh, verse 19. I even have a hard time wrapping my head around this. Bestiality. The disgusting form of a of a deviant behavior that violates the natural order. God's natural order. It's a flagrant disregard of the order and structure that God has endowed through creation. But you've got to understand this law was really not about sex. It's about worship. You may go, why, what, why, what do you mean? Well, some pagans at this time portrayed their deities as having sexual relationships with animals. In particular, the Canaanites. They depicted their god Baal as having relationships with a cow. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these images, but that was one, one of one of the ways that they actually worshipped Baal. It was a it was a ritual part of their pagan worship. The people, in an attempt to get closer to their god, to unite with their god, would attempt to do this through a physical union with animals. And what's really troublesome. Is Now, this is mentioned again in Leviticus and directly addresses it here, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing a movement like this in our lifetime. You know, we can't think of anything more unnatural than what we read here, but people worshipped in this way. I'm not going to read through the whole section of Romans 1, but... Uh, in, if you look at Romans 1, one of the things that it talks about, it says that when a culture begins to twist to the natural order of God's creation, it's more than people just being broken. I mean, we do live in a fallen and broken world, yes. And being broken, people are not just susceptible to sin, but are enslaved to it. But this is more than just living in a broken world. This is full-out rebellion against God. And when a culture makes that choice, then the things which are unnatural begin to be accepted as natural. Ultimately, what is this? This is worshiping the creature instead of the creator. And if you live in a culture where the creature is worshipped instead of the creator, we shouldn't be surprised if the culture reaches the point of verse 19. Makes the coronavirus look like child's play. 
Yes, exactly, it does. Verse 20. A third capital crime, idolatry. The offering of sacrifices to a false god. I mean, this too is clear rebellion against the worship of God alone. Now, later on, we'll read in chapter 23, it goes far, it goes as far as saying, make no mention of the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. You see, God is jealous of his glory, refusing to share his worship with any other thing that people would call a God. Uh, uh, our culture, you know, is, is is filled with injustice towards God, not giving Him what is rightfully due Him. God is sovereign and good; He's holy and pure. So we must not violate the sanctity of His image by defying His created and natural order. He's the only true God, and we must not give worship to anything else including the material culture that we live in. So, rightly living before God means that we owe God our fully devoted worship. And I would argue that a society that fails to give God that justice, a society that fails to honor Him as the one true God, which is the vertical relationship, is always going to fail to honor the horizontal relationship rightly. You will never love your neighbor the way you're supposed to if you don't love God. That's what this section is teaching us. Now I want to skip down to verse 28 and I want because there's two sections here there's there's these that focus I said that focus on our relationship with God and then our relationship with others. I'm going to group the two sections that talk about our relationship with God. I'm going to group those together for a moment. So look with me, if you will, at verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it will be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So what do we owe God here? What do we give to him, when you think about it, for all of his kindness and compassion to us? Well, we owe God reverence. The word revile here, where it says, you shall not revile God. The word revile means to take something lightly. In other words, you dishonor God by failing to accept or acknowledge the full Weight of his majesty. The American standard says curse. To, to treat God with, with disrespect. 
be a way of looking at it. To treat him with such disrespect is a sin against the third commandment. It's a way of taking his name in vain. And the, the, the second part of the verse 28 speaks about cursing a ruler of the people. You know, Scripture tells us, and we have to accept this, that authority, all authority, is established by God. You know, the fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother. We honor our father and mother, not because they in and of themselves are great, but it's because they represent the direct authority of God. It's the first line of authority. And how you respond to authority horizontally will determine how you respond to authority vertically to God. We have to learn to submit. All of us are under authority one way or another. And we have to admit to, we have to learn to submit to that. And scripture tells us, and I remind you, that all authority is established by God. And so cursing or dishonoring those in authority or speaking wickedly against any leader that God has placed in authority is to speak against God. No matter who that leader is. How many of you would find find that difficult? Me. Yeah, I'll admit that's difficult for me. And and sometimes we would think, oh, it, it's just rude or bad manners. But it's more than just bad manners. It is an offense against the divine authority. And it's still not giving God the honor that he deserves. Now, let me back this up and say that that doesn't mean that every leader does what is right. That doesn't mean that we have to respect what a leader does. But how we talk about or how we talk to leaders in authority matters to God. We give them respect as a way of showing ultimate honor to the God who has placed them in authority. Uh, one example out of the New Testament in Acts 23, Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin and he was falsely accused of violating God's law. And while speaking, making his defense, one of the priests ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth, slapped on the face. And Paul replied back saying, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then someone said to him, did you realize you just spoke to the high priest that way? Paul's response was to apologize. Paul remembered this law and he actually quoted from it. And he said, you know, he said, uh, I'm sorry. Paul took this command so seriously that he said he if he had known that it was the high priest, he never would have said such a thing, even though this high priest was falsely accusing him. Who appointed that ruler? God did. 
And who has the ultimate responsibility of carrying out justice on that ruler? God does. And so we've got to understand this too, that when God puts a person into a position of of authority, it does not mean that that person is God's favorite. It means that God put that person there because he has a purpose. And I'll have to admit that it's a purpose that we often don't see or understand. But God has a purpose. And we honor God's overall purpose by showing proper honor to that person. We honor God vertically by honoring the horizontal authorities he has put in place. What else do we owe God? Verses 29 and 30, we owe him our first fruits. The idea here was that the first part of your harvest Firstborn animals in your flock, even your firstborn, were to be dedicated to God. In giving God the first, it symbolized that everything, all of your possessions, really, belong to God. It honored God by saying, you deserve it all. And since you deserve it all, I'm going to give you the first of the harvest. Now, the firstborn, you might look at this and go, whoa, what does this mean? You see, every firstborn son in Israel was consecrated to God with an animal sacrifice. This was a way of showing that the whole family belonged to God. So, I ask myself, for those of you still raising children, you ask yourself, Are we raising children, are you raising children in a way that reflects that you understand they belong to God and not to you? If God has given us his own son, we owe him everything we have. All that he requires is the first of what we have. But here's the argument. You will never give give God your all if you don't give him your first. Giving God the first symbolizes that everything we have belongs to God. Verse 31 may seem a little bit odd because it says, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn By the beast of the field, you're to throw it to the dogs. You know, as Henry and I were driving over here, we saw a dead possum by the side of the road. And it made me think that to put this in modern terms, the Israelites were not to eat roadkill. But why not? Well, was it for public health? Hygiene reasons? No, it was a matter of of purity in order to teach his people how important it is to remain separated from sin God distinguished between clean and unclean animals it was a common practice among the pagans to eat an animal that had been killed by wild beasts 
but a carcass lying in an open field, it had been torn apart by predators and scavengers who were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Therefore, that animal was unclean and unfit to be eaten by human consumption, by Israelites. Eating it would make the person unclean. It would also still have the blood in it. Too. It would, yes, right. Which another part of being unclean. Yes. And God taught his people that they, again, that they owed him a life that was fully consecrated to him. And he chose to illustrate this down to the smallest detail in the life of Israel, down to what could and could not be eaten. And this restriction wasn't just for the priests who had to offer the pure sacrifices. It was for everyone. Because God's plan for Israel, his, what he wanted for the whole nation, what he calls us to be, is a kingdom of priests. God wanted his people to be holy, even in the little things. Do you see how this affects everything in life? It's, it was the ceremonial law that taught them the huge spiritual principles. It's what teaches us that God, that we owe God comprehensive holiness. That we've been set apart from everything that is unclean in this world. Set apart to be holy to God. And God wants us to be like him. And part of showing our honor and showing justice to God is living in his image and being holy as he's holy. God's call is to a life of holiness, even in the smallest of details. And he's called us to be to live a life of holiness, not only in the vertical, but in the horizontal relationship as well. I don't know if you've if you've thought about it in that in that way but as i said started to say earlier how we react and how we have our vertical relationship with god is going to impact our horizontal relationship as well i want to jump back now and look and i think that's a really appropriate uh, to go back and look at verse 16. And, you know, I mentioned how we've got two different directions. I want to look at the horizontal for a moment or two. In the, in the horizontal area of justice, justice toward others. If you notice, this focuses on the weak, on the vulnerable in society. And a great way to measure a society is how they treat those who cannot defend themselves. How they treat those who are can easily be taken advantage of. And it's interesting. There, there's three things that I kind of want to look through in, in this section that are really hot topic news items. Mistreatment of women. Mistreatment of foreigners. Mistreatment of the poor. We don't hear that on the news too much these days, do we? 
but it's important for us as believers to be well grounded and to have a good worldview so that we can speak to these subjects. So if we if we start looking at back to Exodus 16, uh, 22 verse 16, it says here, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give him to her, he shall pay the money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, this first law has to do with justice for women. I don't know if you realize that or not. But it's important to know the social context behind this. I think this is often misunderstood because people don't take the time to grasp the social context. This is not a case of rape. If it had been, the man who committed it, would he would be punishable. Uh, the crime would be punishable by death. But this was a consensual relationship. The woman was, to put it the best I can, the woman was receptive to the man's advances. And the Bible says that the man seduces her. It means he persuaded her and she consented. But even in this situation, notice that God held the man responsible. Rather than seduce the woman, the man should have been willing to marry. You know, these laws, by the way, they were designed to promote the godly pattern of courtship, then marriage, then the sexual relationship. But of course, our world has totally distorted and perverted that. We don't have a healthy and just society when it comes to attitudes toward women because we have perverted the order that God intended. Now, talk about the bride price. The man is supposed to pay a bride price. This doesn't mean the bride was treated as a possession. The bride price was to help protect the woman in that culture. It showed, for one thing, that the man had the financial wherewithal to provide for the woman. This was actually part of the formal negotiations. Yeah, there's always there's always been men in that culture, in the culture today, there have always been men who desire, who love the pleasures of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Given the chance, I think many men, we see that, take advantage of women, perhaps even seducing by promising to marry. Oh yes, I love you so much. I love you. I couldn't love you anymore if we were married. Come on, a marriage license is just a piece of paper. Who needs it? And the next thing you know, the next morning, he's gone. So you see how this was important and needed to protect women? I knew I could support Pat because the army would pay me $90 a month. (laughs) (laughs) And we made it work. (laughs) Uh, Now, 
we go to the next scenario. Okay, so what if they didn't follow God's intended order? They have relationship out of uh, before marriage. Well, there's two different scenarios here. The man still has to pay the bride price and he can marry her. But there was an exception, another exception to protect the woman. The father could refuse to allow the man to marry his daughter. Oh, by itself, the act of sex does not establish a marriage. But how many of you heard, oh, I'm married in the sight of God? <clears throat> yeah. If they were to be married, they had to go, for example, to the father and ask his permission first. So what if the bride told the father, this was a big mistake I don't want to be with him. If the father thought, thought this man was unreasonable, unsuitable, he could refuse. But the Bible doesn't say this woman has to compound one mistake upon another. God provided a way to protect the woman from entering into a bad marriage. And what we see here also is that it is the father's duty to look after their daughters. I think our culture would be far better off if we understood these things. But notice, even if the father re refused to give the bride in marriage, the man still has to pay the bride price. The man had robbed her of her virginity, which would make it more difficult for her to get married. And so she had to have a way to be provided for. If she had her wedding bride price then at least she would have some means of support and do you see how this would be a strong incentive for a man to do things God's way to get married and conduct himself in an honorable way I want to tie into what we prayed about earlier this morning I think here we can extract from this there's a biblical principle of male leadership that is designed to protect women. we got to admit that it seems like mo most women have to look out for themselves these days. And that does put them in a vulnerable position. It ought to be different in the church. A real man of God can be trusted to preserve his own chastity and protect the purity of women. When a man fails to do this, God will hold him accountable. We can be called old-fashioned, but I would argue that this is in keeping with the character of God. Because God is pure and holy, we should be pure and holy in our relationships. Now, I've already talked about as I mentioned, the capital crimes. But I want to move on now and talk about uh, the next section. Pull back my notes here. There. Moving on to verse verses 25 and 27. Actually, 21. That's where I want to get to. 
Yes. Verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries for me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Again, we see God's character of how we're supposed to be. The sojourner. To understand this, we have to understand what the word sojourner means. There were three Hebrew words used to describe people in this culture. There was the native-born citizen. Of course, one who was born in that country. There was the foreigner. A person who is really just traveling through the country. Uh, basically passing through as a visitor. And the word we have here, in my translation, sojourner. This one means the person who has left their homeland and has established a new permanent home, a new residence in this country. There's one little twist with this, though. The term sojourner means that you have established residence in a country with permission. A lot of people miss that when they read through this. But a sojourner speaks of someone who has entered a country with permission. They couldn't just come in unapproved and really have no means of support. So there's an assumption with this passage of scripture, with this law, that it is being obeyed. And permission to live in the country has been granted. Think about Joseph in Egypt. When Joseph moved his family uh, during the famine and moved them to Egypt, he went to Pharaoh and asked permission to move his family. And what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh gave them permission, granted them a place to live in Goshen. But what's being taught here when it says, you shall not wrong or oppress a sojourner? What's being taught here is that God's people are to be gracious and hospitable to those who come to live in the land. The sojourner should be treated as you treat anybody else because God was reminding the Israelites, you were once this same way. You went into Egypt, you were given land to settle in. But remember, after a time, you were made slaves. And so it is very easy when you are the majority of a culture to treat others oppressively and take advantage of them. And that God was warning them, you need to take how I have treated you. And that needs to be the framework for how you treat others. 
In Leviticus it says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. And we know what it means to be outsiders. We're strangers and aliens and exiles. And God's word tells us that we're believers. That if we're believers, this is not our home. It tells us how to treat the widows and the orphans. To take care of the widows and the orphans, the fatherless. They're too at a disadvantage. You know, widows, they've not only suffered the loss of a husband, of 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 someone they love, but they've suffered the loss of their livelihood. There's no one to protect them from injustice except God. And God calls on his people to fulfill that. And God gives a warning and says, if we abuse them, the judgment will fit the crime. If you don't care for the widows, I'll make your wife a widow. If you don't care for the orphans, I'll make your children fatherless. I think the application here is obvious. If we claim to follow God, then we must show his compassion to strangers, to widows, to orphans. Why? Because this is who our God is. And who do we represent? We represent God and his kingdom. And verse 25 through 27 talks about this. It says, talks about lending money. You know, I've already read, if you lend money to people, what should you expect? This is justice to the poor. You know, God is talking to his people, but he's saying, if you lend money, don't charge interest to your people. This person is in a difficult place. Be compassionate because God is compassionate. Now, this wasn't a handout because it was a loan to be paid back. This wasn't, you know, promoting just giving out money without any responsibility. And what are they talking about the cloak here? Well, when a loan was typically made, it was customary to have collateral. When we take out a loan, we usually put up our house as collateral or the vehicle. The only person, the only thing this person owned was the cloak on his back. This was a heavy garment worn during the day when it was cold and used for sleeping on the ground at night to stay warm. And you might think, well, what better incentive than to keep the coat? If I keep the coat, if I'm lending them money and I keep their cloak, that's a good way to remind them when they're out shivering at night, that's a good way to remind them that they owe me money. But God says, I have compassion on the poor. You're to give the lender back his coat at night. Because God says he wants even the poorest man in Israel tucked away to have a good night's sleep. Be compassionate because God is compassionate. You know, if our attitude toward the poor is to simply, oh, get a job, 
then I think that we are out of step with God's law. If our attitude towards the poor is to simply hand out money without accountability, I think we're out of step with God's law. One of the things we need to understand in all of this, though, is that some justice gets dealt with in the present, and some of it will get dealt with in the future. God sees all injustice, and he will deal with it eventually. You know, we show, we show mercy and we show compassion because our God is merciful and compassionate to us. We were spiritually orphaned. We were widows in a sense outside the family of God and he adopted us. God paid the debt for our sin when he sent his son to die on the cross. Everyone who believes in Jesus is welcomed into God's family. And now we are called to live as God's people. And we're called to treat others the way that God treats us. And the motivation for the way that we treat others should not be humanitarian, but trinitarian. It's not because we simply want to help people. It's because our desire to help others is an outflow of our desire to reflect the glory of God. As I started off with this, the way that God treated you and the way that you worship God impacts how you treat others. We're called to live in such a way that we create a world that helps the disadvantaged to be protected, to be accepted, and to be loved and provided for. Because that's what God did for us. God wants us to be like him right down to the way we treat others so that our whole lives are stamped with his character. Let's pray. Lord, Father, thank you for your word, for how it teaches us we're to have a vertical relationship with you, of how it teaches us how to live rightly before you. Father, we thank you of how your word teaches us to have the horizontal relationship with others. May we bear fruit and offer it up to you. Help us to understand and live these truths. To live rightly toward you. To live rightly and justly toward others. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.